This is the FS Tech Podcast. Despite the best efforts of regulators, organized crime continues to represent a huge part of the global economy. Criminal groups are funneling billions of dollars of revenue every year through accounts, which needs to appear legitimate. With the large transactions involved, criminals are favoring companies as convenient fronts to launder money at scale because consumer accounts simply can't handle the numbers. Welcome to the FS Tech podcast. I'm Will McCurdy, content editor of FS Tech, and today we're going to look at how banks are attempting to stop organized criminals funneling dirty money through their ecosystems via corporate customers. Banks who are found to be assisting organized crime by facilitating these illicit transactions face huge potential financial losses, regulatory penalties, and the threat of long-term reputational damage. Many banks, even in a digital age, still rely on paper to a large degree, or struggle with a myriad of data access and data governance issues across different localities as they onboard corporate clients and carry out AML risk assessments. In response, many banks are exploring how they can leverage data analytics and real-time transaction monitoring in the fight against money laundering, using data from across an organization to pick up on specific transactions, and tools such as AI, machine learning, and robotic process automation to spot patterns and flag potential breaches to human investigators. To delve further into these challenges, as well as impossible solutions, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Adam McLaughlin, Global Head of Financial Crime Strategy and AML Subject Matter Expert at Nice Actimize. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Adam. It's really great to have you here and really appreciate everyone who can take the time to do this with us. No, thank you very much, Will. Um, I appreciate you inviting me on to this and I'm looking forward to the um, the conversation today. So just, just to jump into the first question, um, why do you think corporates make such attractive targets for organized crimes, money laundering interests in the first place? Good question to start the podcast with. And I think there's one simple answer to it. It's the ability to hide behind the corporate structure. So what a criminal doesn't want to do is to say to the world, here I am, I'm a criminal, come and catch me. They want to try and be anonymous and hide behind veils of facades and and complexity. And corporates and corporate structures give them the ability to do that. You can hide behind controllers and owners you can make the web of corporate structures very complex. We can use trust partners, you know, shell companies. You can spread a structure internationally if you want to across multiple jurisdictions with different corporates owning different corporates and make it quite a complex web. But the other thing with it is it's the ability to move vast sums of money that can be integrated with legitimate funds because criminal organizations don't necessarily want to have a business where it's just purely illegitimate money because that way you might get caught quicker. But if you can somehow try and legitimize your business and you can try and weave illegitimate funds into that, it makes it a lot harder to separate out legitimate and illegitimate. You know, some things come to mind, you know, nail bars, cash intensive businesses, hand car washes that have popped up, especially in the UK. Again, cash intensive businesses. You even get small shops that will say, I only take cash. And things like laundrettes and so on and so forth. I'm not saying that businesses that take cards aren't subject to illegitimate funds because they absolutely are. But if you start using cash intensive businesses and then weave some illegitimate funds into that from drug money, et cetera, it makes it a lot easier to get it into the banking system. And, you know, this is proven and this was shown really in the papers that came out. So the Panama, the Paradise, the Pandora papers, 
you know, these really show the scale of the problem in terms of using shell companies and corporate complex structures to hide ultimate beneficial owners of companies. The other thing as well that is why they're easy to use is, especially here in the UK, they're pretty easy to set up, um, quite simply. Um, I think for an entire sum of £12 sterling, you can go online, you can fill out a corporate form online, you don't have to validate your ID and there's no identification verification with it. And you submit the form, you pay your money and off you go, you've got a limited company. And some companies that are set up are just completely bogus. You look at some of the names, they've literally just got across a keyboard and determined when they're going to stop. And it's A, B, C, D, X, Y, B, limited. You can almost set up whatever you want as a corporate. And actually, one example of this is it's the infamous Darks Lane in Potter's Bar. This is well known to law enforcement years ago, and it came out in some of the papers recently. And I think the FinCEN leaks back in 2020, again, this was exposed as a go-to incorporation agent for businesses, especially legitimate businesses. And it's basically found that over a thousand UK companies involved in my laundering were incorporated there as per the FinCEN leak files, like I said, in 2020. And actually one interesting piece is two firms that registered there at Darks Lane were Ergo Invest and Chadborg Trade. And they're both limited companies. And they both reported identical incomes of £21,353 sterling for one year's trading. But documents that were leaked as part of these investigations um, and the FinCEN leaks found that actually Ergo Invest actually had 535 million going through that company and Chadborg had just under 2 billion going through the company, which is a little bit different to just over 21,000 turnover in a year that they've actually declared. Um, so anyway, that's really why corporates are quite easy or the go-to target vehicles for laundering illicit money. Yeah, corporate infrastructures are becoming more complex year by year. And I think the public awareness is definitely developing in terms of how there isn't this binary separation between organized crime and conventional businesses. And things like the Pandora Papers are opening people's eyes to the fact that it's really mixed up at a global corporate scale and so on. So just to segue into the next question. What do you think are the main types of challenges which financial institutions face when they're trying to detect illegal transactions across their infrastructures? Look, it's ultimately trying to understand the customer or the entity that you're dealing with, right? That is the biggest challenge. Like I said before in the previous answer is corporates are a good way to try and hide yourself and hide your identity. And having to unweave that corporate structure as a financial institution and trying to work out who controls the company who's a shareholder in the company, you know, who is ultimately in control of this company um, and who's ultimately benefiting from this company. Those questions are quite hard questions, especially when the complexity of the structures start going international or start having multiple chains to it. So that's really where the challenges come. It's really understanding who's who and, and who's doing what. The challenges are made, I think, more stark by the fact that organisations, especially the, the larger organisations, um, when I say organisations, I mean financial services organisations, are siloed. So the big guys have asset management for um, arms, wealth management arms, investment arms, maybe a wholesale part of the business, maybe a corporate part of the business, maybe you know, a retailer part of the business. Quite often these will have different KYC teams, 
Um, they may even have different transaction monitoring teams, potentially different sanctions teams. I, mean, I know they're starting to bring them together a little bit more than they have been, but you've still got a number of silos and even across systems and databases, they're siloing. So that doesn't help in understanding the structures and the financial crime risks associated with corporates either, because you know you might have a corporate who might have been onboarded across three or four different verticals. Well, if you're not sharing that data, how can you tell whether that corporate has told you the same information or there's differences in the information they told different parts of the business? You don't. And if you don't have all the information available to you in some sort of centralized place, then how can you determine what is normal and what is not normal for the corporate? And therefore, if you can't determine that, then how can you monitor them effectively? How can you detect if something's changed and something is suspicious? You know, how can you investigate that correctly? Quite simply, the answer is you can't or you can't very well without quite significant human effort, but the humans have to know what to look for in the first place. If they haven't been told or identified what to look for, then you're sort of got this vicious circle of not knowing what to look for and not knowing what's suspicious and therefore basically criminals potentially get in the way of it. So it's all about having this big picture and being able to understand who's who, who's connected to who. And, you know, especially when it comes to things like uh, correspondent banking or, you know, you've got counterparties um, transacting. The question is, well, how do you know that these counterparties aren't related? And if it's two corporates, one corporate trading with another corporate, which happens if you're doing trade or you're doing international trade, it's natural that one company will buy from another and you'll make payments to the other company to buy goods. That's absolutely normal. It happens every year. There's billions, if not trillions of dollars of transactions happening across trade every year. But what if these companies are linked? What if the ultimate beneficial owner of both companies is connected to both companies? Therefore, it becomes a little bit more suspicious because it might not just be trade, it might just be moving assets and wealth from one location to another. And so you really have to build a network as well and understand what's going on across your supply chain and your, your finance chain. I think it ultimately comes down to what is a database question. Um, it doesn't matter how good your financial crime teams are or how much expertise they have if they don't have the underlying data from all of these different parts of the business so they can get a bird's eye view of, of what's actually going on and pick up on all of these inconsistencies which you've mentioned. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So just linking into the last question, how do you feel the challenges of preventing corporate money laundering differ from the AML challenges affecting retail accounts? Another good question. Um, so I, I think the biggest one here is a retail account. You have an individual who comes to the bank or even online and says, I want an account for myself to do day-to-day -day payments. I want to receive my salary into it and I want to spend my money wherever I'll spend it. Holidays, purchases of um, goods and assets, et cetera, et cetera. The person you're dealing with is the person who owns the account, quite simply. And yes, there might be some challenges to that. You know, they might be coerced into doing it. There might be a mule account. You know, there might be a trafficking victim. You know, so there is challenges with that. You know, although it's the individual who's got the account, they might not actually ultimately control the account. You know, somebody else might be in control of it for them. But there is ways and means to monitor and check for that. And there's red flags you can look for. And then weave into the world of corporate. Well, corporates don't. They are a legal entity in their own right, but somebody else controls them. The account that's onboarded and the account that's trading through the organization isn't an individual who's making the transactions. The individuals making the transactions on behalf of the company are sitting elsewhere. And so you have to understand those individuals and they can sit behind that facade, if you like, of the corporate. So it's not as easy to understand who's putting the string for the corporate and who's putting the strings in terms of the transactions going through that corporate. And I think the other difference between that is the amount of money. So 
individuals are generally quite static, I would say, in terms of their financial flows. So quite often they get payments, they, they get a salary every month and they will spend their money every month. And yes, there might be nuances on that. They might sell a house and get a big lot of money. They might get a birthday or might get lucky on the lottery and get big amounts of money into that account. But it's quite easy, I'll use the word easy lightly here, to try and rectify whether this is legitimate funds or not. I know there's nuances to that, but it's generally one of payments that deviate from the norm. And you can maybe make inquiries to work out whether that's legit or not. Businesses can vary widely in terms of how they transact. They could be subject to high growth, so therefore their transactions might change monthly or even weekly. There might be change in demand patterns. So, you, for example, the pandemic firms who had PPE and you know medical supplies, their trading went up exponentially, right? Because there was lots of demand for it. And even online stores, because all the retail stores are shut, online increased. And so it's harder to determine what's normal, what's not normal for a business because things change and things can change quite rapidly for a corporate. And so therefore, trying to assess what's normal, what's not normal for a corporate and who's part of the corporate structure or not part of the corporate structure, and just having a full understanding of the corporate is a lot harder. So that's where the differences are really between retail and corporates. It's just a lot harder to get a grasp on normality. No, that, that's all very true. I mean, consumers really are creatures of habit. The average person spends a very similar amount and very similar things day in, day out. They spend money at the same shops, they have the same expenses, they generally have the same income. Whereas for corporates, I mean, corporate fundraising, a lot of the deal making mergers and acquisitions, like like what you highlighted to do with COVID grants, PPE, it can be esoteric and confusing even for someone from an accountancy or business journalism background. It, it's just complex and it's it's easy to see how that can be used for money laundering because it's so difficult to understand in the first place a lot of the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And exactly that's what makes it hard to create that normal baseline to work from. So just to move back to some of the more technical IT challenges, how do you think that financial institutions with a significant reliance on legacy infrastructures, including pen and paper, can improve their anti-money laundering procedures? So I think ultimately technology is going to play a big part in this. I think there's a lot of technology out there now that can remove the manual processing, the manual repeated nature of the manual processing that happens and create a much more automated, streamlined and integrated process. You know, it can break down silos. I think, like I said at the beginning, silos, I think is one of the challenges and one of the problems that exist today. The technology has the ability to pull data in from various places to break those silos down. And ultimately what technology will do there is it will remove that manual error because however good humans are, there will always be an element of manual error that occurs. You might have a new starter who's new to the role, who might not know the role so well or, or the processes so well, so might make mistakes. You might have somebody have somebody who's overworked, who's trying to get through lots and lots of workload, who might just make a little mistake, but that could actually impact or change the outcome decisions that are made. So technology and automation will get rid of that manual processing and the potential the errors that exist there. Um, but ultimately, I think where technology can come in and what needs to happen, but it's not just a technology piece, right? This is also, you need the right people with the right skills and knowledge in place to do this, but we need to strengthen the KYC process. I sort of liken this to the front door of your house. If you've got a poor KYC process and you don't do the right checks and you don't do the right validation, you don't do the right due diligence on your customers or your prospects, it's basically like leaving your front door open or, or at least leaving a key in the front door for somebody to walk in the house and take what they want. So I think that needs to be strengthened. I think technology can definitely 
help organisations get there. So just to continue on the KYC point, how do you think that financial institutions can reduce false positives uh, while still picking up on suspicious transactions? Good question. So I think moving on from the last answer I gave about technology, you know, I think it's going into a bit more detail on the technology itself. So what needs to happen is we need the ability to join the dots. So we need the ability to work out that person A is linked to corporate B and corporate B is linked to corporate C and and so on and so forth. And so we need to be able to build this network picture about who's connected to who in an appropriate way. I'm not saying keep going and going and going until you're sort of you've connected every single person in the world because that's not going to be helpful to man or beast. But what I'm saying is for the immediacy, understand the entity you're looking at, understand the entity that you're dealing with, but understand who's connected to them. Maybe sort of looking at maybe four or five hops back, potentially even further, it depends on the investigation. But you need to be able to do that. Um, so this whole network analysis piece comes into the fold. And I think for understanding corporates, it's it's exceptionally important. Other technologies that have to come into play is things like um, entity resolution or identity resolution, as it's also called. And that's really the ability to deduplicate records. So organizations, you know, especially the big boys, will have potentially 15 to 20% of their customer records are duplicates because the stuff's been input incorrectly or like I said earlier, they've got multiple lines of business where the customers got different accounts with the same bank, but across different lines of business. But maybe the details have been entered slightly differently each time. So it's created multiple records. So that doesn't help either because, you know, multiple records means that you're looking at the wrong things that might incorrectly alert. So if you can pull these records together and deduplicate them, that's another benefit. But also it's all about, I'm going to use a buzzword here, you know, AI machine learning. Everyone talks about it. But actually, you know, there is a real use case for this. And that use case is using the analytics to understand what is normal and what is abnormal for the customer. And we need data. We need the right data for this. Um, So it's all about data underlying this, but the right data, not just any data. And if we can do the right data, put the analytics over the top of that, but also use what we call machine learning, which will look at outcomes, we'll look at decisioning, we'll look at what's happened. It will then teach a system to improve and optimize these are the things that are needed to start reducing false positives, start focusing on the true positives and actually look at true suspicion rather than just, it doesn't look right, but over to you and you make a decision. But like I said, at the end of the day, we still need a human being. I'm not saying technology is to take away a human. It's not. The human still needs to make that final decision. They still have that role of being a skilled expert to know what is suspicious, what's not. But the system can point them in the right direction. Oh, Adam, I think you've done a really great job of outlining the technical challenges with the stopping firms effectively uh, stop money laundering. But just to move outside of that, outside of technology, what else do you think needs to be done to help mitigate the risks of banks, corporate consumers being used for money laundering? I love this question because I think there's outside of technology, you know, like I alluded to earlier, there is so much scope for improvements. um, And I just think it's about everyone working together. So the first thing I think needs to happen is there needs to be a better way of the industry working together and sharing information. I think information sharing is going to be really critical in changing the paradigm in terms of identifying, detecting money laundering, especially across corporates. I know the Nordic countries have come together and created a KYC utility. I think back in 2019, it's called Invidum, I think it's pronounced. And basically, this is six of the major banks in the Nordics. I think Danske, DNB, Handelsbank and Nordea, Seb and Swedbank, I think, got together and created this utility model where 
all the KYC information is shared into a single place and they can extract data from that single point to onboard and to remediate customers. The ability of that alone to just validate and verify customer information is huge because the customers, then, if they're lying, they've got to lie. If they're going across six banks and creating accounts for six banks, the customers then got to lie six times with the same information. Otherwise, they'll get picked up. You know, if you can scale that beyond those six banks even further, then you can start building patterns and start finding networks uh, with criminal organizations, finding where there's inconsistencies in information provided. And I think that is going to be a huge step forward in identifying and stopping money laundering across the financial system. I also think we need tighter legislation and regulations in this space. So I know the Fifth Money Laundering Directive has gone some way about corporate registers. So there has to be a centralised free corporate register in each member state. That still hasn't happened yet. I know there's still some member state or member countries who haven't actually got a free or even actually a registry. Um, so although that was, the fifth directive came in a couple of years ago now, that still hasn't come to fruition, but that is a step in the right direction. Companies House are moving in that direction as well. You know, this already exists. It's already free. It already has information. But the problem with these registers is they're not verified or validated. I could create a company for £12 sterling and I could put whatever I want on the details and I can have a company certificate in 24 to 48 hours. It's that easy. Because there's no validation or verification, just because I'm a corporate entity doesn't mean that everything I've told Companies House is correct. And it's not Companies House to validate yet. Okay, They've got no remit or jurisdiction to validate. You know, They're doing what they should do. So it's not Companies House's fault. But there has to be greater controls on who creates a company and validation of the details they provide. The other thing is around people sharing knowledge, not just sharing information, but sharing knowledge, sharing risks. And it's all about, I think, you know, having the skills and the knowledge and experience and sharing that across teams. So it's the people part that needs to happen. I think join up departments as well, you know, across that whole siloed piece. But outside of technology siloing and not siloing, I think teams need to be a bit more joined up. You know, investigators from fraud departments and AML departments and KYC departments have to start speaking to each other. And then the final piece I'm going to say on this one as well is a lot of these corporates are enabled by things like incorporation agents, lawyers, potentially estate agents if they're buying property. So I think there does need to be more focus and potentially even more penalties on designated non-financial businesses and professions. If you look at the Pandora papers, it was Monsac Fonseca who was the subject of those paper leaks. And they were basically a law firm who were, for all intents and purposes, acting almost criminally because they were incorporating corporates knowing potentially that these individuals behind these were corrupt or involved in criminal activity yet they still carried on creating these businesses that they created. So it's not just financial system. I think outside of that, the whole DNFBPs needs to come into focus as well. So you've outlined a lot of the issues which are holding companies back and a lot of the things that the government could do better. But I just wanted to touch on what you think the future holds in terms of money laundering and anti-money laundering. Oh, crystal ball time. Um, so... Look, well, I think you mentioned something earlier on, which I think resonated with me. And that was the fact that there's great awareness in the public about this. The latest papers, I think the Pandora papers came out, the FinCEN leaks have come out. There have been things like Panorama on BBC has done articles on this. There's been newspaper articles. I think there was greater public awareness and disgust. Maybe that's a bit heavy word, but I think there's definitely a public swaying saying this isn't right, this shouldn't be happening. And, you know, I think public opinion will influence decisions down the line. So I do think that public opinion shift will help. And I do think that public opinion shift will continue, especially as people feel that there's a disparity between the wealthy and the poor and people being left behind. I think as that, that's 
spread continues, I think people will feel a bit more like they're being treated badly and things need to change and criminals are a good one to go after, you know, these corporate structures. So I think that will happen. I think legislation will change and it will catch up with saying that actually corporates need to be a bit more accountable and there has to be a bit more validation on who's registering these companies. And the other one, I think, is this consortium piece I just mentioned. Consortium, I really do think over the next two to three years, or I hope at least over the next two to three years, will really start coming into its own. And the technology will be there to allow them to share information without giving away PII or any other sort of sensitive data. But I do think that will be a game changer. And technology is there now that can help achieve this. It just it needs to be the will from both legislators and also from the industry to say, actually, let's start using this technology in a positive way and maybe even change legislation to allow this to happen in a positive way to actually make a difference in fighting financial crime. So hopefully all those things come true and, you know, in 10 years time, there'll be no financial crime because we'd have solved it all. But I don't think we'll be there, but I think we're going in the right direction. Yeah, I know it's practically a cliche at this point to talk about the advantages or sort of how the pandemic changed things. But I think public distrust of institutions is something that's definitely rose. People, a lot of them have more free time to really think about how these underlying institutions work, where the money is actually going, inequalities within society. So hopefully just to end things on a more positive note, the public will become more aware of financial crime, as will the business community, and the technology will advance and the legislation will advance. And eventually we will reach a point where the world isn't quite so beholden to organised criminals. Yeah, here's the hoping, right, Will? Here's the hoping. But yeah, I think you're right. I think we are moving in the right direction. I think it will continue that way. Oh, so that was a fantastic podcast, Adam. Thanks so much for the time. Lots of really good points, which I think will resonate with our audience. So if our listeners want to learn more about Nice Actimize, where can we send them? So if they want to learn more, then I'm more than happy for them to reach out to me on LinkedIn so they can find me, Adam McLaughlin. It's got my face on it, so you should be able to find me quite easily. Uh, alternatively, the email address is asktheexperts at niceactimize.com. Um, alternatively, they can visit our website, niceactimize.com, and go to the Contact Us form, and we will get in touch with them as soon as possible. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a good discussion. All right. Thanks for the time again, Adam. And uh, to our listeners, see you soon. Thank you for listening to the FS Tech Podcast.